My name is Stephen Rabin, and I have the privilege of being a deacon here uh, and serving in that capacity at Forest. And um, can I just tell you, I am really excited to be with you guys this morning. I'm excited to worship. I'm excited to be able to, to preach the Word, and I'm just excited for, for this opportunity. If you have your Bibles, hopefully they're still open to Exodus chapter 16. Uh, Tim graciously read for us this morning verses 1 through 15. Our text for study is going to be verses 16 through 27. Speaking of excitement, out of curiosity, did anybody see the firework display in Rustburg last night? Did anybody go down? A couple people. Um, every year in Rustburg, they, they do a really, it's actually a family um, that puts it on and, and does a really big display. And we are one week away from the 4th of July, and so there's going to be lots of opportunities for fireworks coming up. I think Lynchburg, City of Lynchburg is doing one, I think, on Saturday. There's all the fireworks stands that are set up in the Walmart parking lot and the Sam's Club parking lot. And growing up, fireworks was kind of a tradition for us. We love doing fireworks, and we would all get together, usually 4th of July and New Year's Eve, and we would usually go over to the Martins house. Martins were family friends of ours, and there would be a group of us uh, through my dad's work, and there would be probably 20 or 30 people gathered at the house with probably 10 or 15 kids. So big group, and we would all pull our money together, and we would go buy lots of fireworks. And I'm not saying like sparklers and the things that you light and flash on the ground and you walk away. Like we did it big. We, we got the mortars, we got the stuff that went up and blew up, and we would go out early, and we'd set up a big sheet of two-by-four, and we would drill down those tubes um, and set up six or seven of those mortars at a time, and we would have grand finales, and we would have a time of it. And fireworks, when they are shot off as they're designed, are a beautiful sight to behold. The way they go up and explode, and the light uh, just kind of shows up on the dark sky, but what happens when fireworks are not shot off the way that they're designed? One time, we decided that we were going to have some fun, and so we were going to shoot off three mortars at once. So we get out, we set them up in the tubes, we tie all the wicks together, we lean down with the lighter, we set it on fire, and we run back. And as we're all standing back, ready to see the fireworks go off, we hear them go off one at a time. It goes, two, two, boom. The last one sounded a little different. We watch it go up, and the first one blows up, and the second one blows up. And see, what happened, the reason the third one sounded a little different is because the third one didn't go up. It went down. <laughs> Someone accidentally loaded that mortar upside down in the firework tube, and so what happened, uh, about half the people knew when they heard the sound and they started ducking. The other ones were helpless and standing up at the sky, and suddenly it blew up in the yard, and sparks start flying everywhere as this mortar shell exploded in the middle of the yard. And chaos took over. People were diving under chairs, behind tables, and it looked like just a scene out of a movie. It was absolutely chaotic. And, and, and so, you know, uh, it, it seems like a silly question to ask, but I'll ask the question anyway. Was that mishap the mistake of the firework manufacturer? Of course not, right? Like, that was a couple of kids who weren't paying any attention and put one upside down and put everybody at risk. I think if we're honest, sometimes we can look around life, and even sometimes we can look around places in the church, here in, in, in this country and around the world, and, and sometimes... Life can look more like the back se backyard scene at the Martins than it does like a firework display in the sky. And it can look very chaotic, and it can look very dangerous, and people feel like they're in harm's way, and, and there's need, and there's hunger, and there's greed, and there's disparities of wealth, and, and there's suffering and need, and we wonder, where is God? Like, is God a good God? Like, is, is he really in control? Because I'm looking around, and none of this seems to make sense with an all-powerful God who's in control. 
Well, what I want to put to you this morning and what I want to suggest is that God is in fact a good God and he is in fact in control and God has in fact given us a very good plan and design for how he desires for his world to operate. And and when we follow that plan and we follow that instruction, incredible things happen, but when we choose to disobey God's instructions, oftentimes the result of that is chaos and suffering and need. But God has designed something for us and I think we can see that this morning in the text in Exodus chapter 16 verses 16 through 27. And what I want to suggest this morning is this. I want to suggest to you that God's economy, that God has indeed set up for us an economy to live by, and God's economy is an economy of plenty. An economy of plenty. And we're going to spell that out, and we're going to go into a lot of detail of that, but, but that is in contrast to the way our world operates, and our world operates in an economy of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. We compete with one another, but God's economy is an economy of of plenty. And there's six things about this economy that I want to point out to us this morning, but I want to start by reading the text. Exodus chapter 16, verses 16 through 27. Tim introduced it for us, and so you know where we're at in the narrative. Uh, Israel has come out of Egypt. God has delivered them miraculously through the the ten plagues, brought them through uh, the the sea on dry ground, has destroyed Pharaoh's army, and now they're complaining against God, wishing that they were back in Egypt in slavery because at least they could eat. We're starving, we're going to die, and God answers their cry and provides food for them. So let's continue reading in verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each of them as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will, find, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. I mentioned before that there's six things about this text that I want to point out that I think teaches us what God's economy is and how it operates. And the first thing is this, God's economy is built on trust in him. God's economy is built on trust in him. Every single day, Israel had to trust that God was going to provide for them. God did not provide for them and say, okay, here's your week's portion set up. He didn't set up a storehouse for them and put a bunch of food in there and say, okay, guys, for the whole fall, you're covered. He said, each and every day, you're going to wake up and you're going to trust that I'm going to provide for you. And every day they had to wake up and decide, okay, I'm going to trust that God's going to provide for me. And they would go out and they would gather. And it was required of them that their trust and their dependence be put on the Lord. That's how his economy was working. 
But notice that there were some who didn't trust in him and some who tried to take control of the situation for themselves and tried to make sure that they were set up for the future because it was important to them that they didn't have to rely on anyone that they would be taken care of. What happened for them? Well, verse 19, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. They tried to keep it, and it spoiled. And, and, and instead of having food in their tent, they instead had maggots and worms and spoiled bread. And then what happened on the Sabbath? On the seventh day, some people went out to gather, but they found none. I think this is really important, and so I want you to, to, to consider what I'm saying here. Disobedience makes obedience even harder. Disobedience oftentimes makes obedience even harder. Think about it from the perspective of those who did not trust and obey in God's word, did not trust and obey in what he had planned for them, but instead try to take control for themselves. What happened? So they go out the first day. They don't have any food. God has promised to give them food, but this is the first time that food shows up. So they go out and they gather it and they decide, you know what, I'm not going to eat the full omer that I've been allotted. I'm going to save some of it because I don't know if there's going to be any food tomorrow and I haven't eaten in a week and I'm starving. So I'm going to put some aside to make sure that I can eat tomorrow. And they wake up and the food that they had, so they didn't get all that they were given the day before because they tried to save some of it. And now that bread is rotten, stinking, can't eat it, and it's disgusting inside of their tent. So now they have life experience that tells them preserved bread spoils. Okay, so what happens for those people when the Sabbath comes? Well, on the Sabbath day, God says, okay, now I want you to gather twice as much, and I want you to keep it for the next day. But what does their experience tell them? Well, if I keep it for the next day, it's going to spoil. And it says that some still didn't obey. And maybe these were the same people who didn't obey the first time, and they thought, no, I'm not going to keep bread because I don't want maggots in my tent again, so I'll just go out and get more bread the next day. So what do they do? They wake up the next day. It says they went out and they found none. So not only did they not get enough bread the first day, but now they're, they're not eating enough the next day because they didn't trust in what God said. And now guess what? The next day that they wake up, how do they know that God's going to provide for them again? Because now they have life experience that tells them if I go out and I look for bread, bread may not be there because that's what just happened the day before. And, and contrast that with the people that listened and obeyed God because what's their experience? Well, I don't have to worry about anything because God's going to provide. Because he said to go out and get some and I'd have enough. And he told me the next day there'd be enough. And then he told me not to go out and I'd have enough. And I did. So I know that if I follow what God tells me, I'm going to be okay. Sometimes in life, we struggle to trust what God's plan is for our life because our life experience tells us that it's not going to work out. Because we've been trying to do things on our own and in our own way. And we have a lot of of life experience that tells us, you know what? I don't think what God's telling me is going to work because I've tried this and that doesn't work. But that's not God's fault that your life experience doing it your own way doesn't line up with what he said, and it doesn't mean that his plan isn't true. But rather, God's economy is built on trust in him, and he says, I will take care of you if you follow and obey me. The question is, are we going to trust in what God had said? Because to experience God's economy of plenty, we have to have the foundation of trust in the Lord. Disobedience is makes faith and obedience often even harder. What else does this text show us about God's economy? Number two, God's economy is an economy of plenty. God's economy is an economy of plenty. Verses 17 and 18 are the key verses this morning. I want to read them again. It says this, they, the Israelites, gathered, some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could 
eat. Now, before I get too far into this, I want to make a statement, and I want to say this. God is enough. Christ is enough. God has supplied enough for us. Christ has supplied enough for us. And that in and of itself is an absolute truth. So, so above anything and everything else, God is enough and Christ is enough, which means that we have eternal hope and security in him because of what he did for us on the cross, died for our sins, that we have that hope. So no matter what happens in life, if I am martyred for the sake of Christ, if I starve to death for the sake of Christ, if I die for the sake of Christ, all of those tragedies can be faced because he is enough. That is an eternal truth that, that we are spiritually secure in him. But God is not just the God of the supernatural, he's also the God of the natural. So just as much as God cares about your eternal future, God is also the God who entered this world, took on the form of a human, and had dwelt among us, and cares about what happens in our daily life too. So while God is enough and sufficient for eternity, I also believe that God is intimately at work with us in our daily lives in the natural world as well. And so part of this economy is not just what happens in eternity, but also the way that he's providing for us now. And it says that in this text that they were each person was allotted one omer. Uh, an omer is an ancient form of measurement. I don't think many of you are in the kitchen wh whipping up omers of food. Uh, an omer is about two quarts. Two quarts would have made about anywhere from like half to a full loaf of bread. So picture you're going to the grocery store, you pick up a loaf of bread. That's about how much food you had for the day in terms of bread. So between that and quail, uh, a loaf of bread and some quail, that's a decent amount of food and enough sustenance for a person to be fed for the day. God's economy was an economy of plenty. There was enough. There was sufficiency. Now, I think defining words is really important. When I say God's economy is of plenty, some people think that plenty means excess. It's not what I'm saying this morning. Um, the people of Israel were not living in extravagance and excess. It's, it wasn't a, a health and wealth gospel that if you trust in God, he's going to lavishly bless you with everything you've ever wanted. That's not what the Israelites had. They weren't eating lobster, bisque, and ribeye every day in the wilderness. Um, I enjoy cooking. I enjoy food. I'm a spice guy. I don't think they had Dave, Dave's rib rub to rub on the quail uh, in the wilderness, right? Like they, they had quail and bread every single day for every meal for 40 years. That's not extravagance. That's not excess, but it was enough. It was sufficient, and it was an economy of plenty that they could indeed be taken care of. And can I tell you something else? And, and if you're taking notes, Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9, feel free to jot that down and go back to it. In, in, in that proverb, the, the writer of the proverb, he says this, he basically pleads out to God and he says, God, don't give me poverty and don't give me riches. Give me just enough because I don't want to either A, be in desperation or B, have so much that I forget who you are. God's economy is built on trust in him, and sometimes not giving us excess is truly a blessing, because sometimes when we have a lot of excess, we begin to put trust in our stuff, we begin to put trust in our future, and we end up with a lackadaisical faith that's not relying on God in the everyday. That's not true of all places and of all times, but sometimes God knows us well enough to know that we can't handle excess because we would then stop putting our trust in him. So God's economy is an economy of plenty. We trust in him, and he will, in fact, provide for us. And this economy of plenty, I, I said this before, and I'm going to say it again, this is in contrast to an economy of scarcity that our world operates in. In our world, there's not enough resources to go around, so what happens? We compete for resources, right? 
Uh, our entire economic system is based on this idea that there's not enough to go around, and so we, re- we compete for, for wealth, for food, because we don't know that there's going to be enough to go around. The, the cliche phrase, the early bird gets the worm. I heard that my whole life and, and grew up, you know, striving to always do the best that I can because, you know, you go out there and you get it. But what does that phrase imply? The early bird gets the worm implies that there's not enough worms to go around. So if you don't get out there and get it, then you won't have any to get. Our economy, our world operates on this idea that there's not enough to go around, so we have to take everything that we can for ourselves to get by. But in God's economy, we don't have to live in competition with one another, right? Because we're not competing with each other because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all part of the same kingdom of God, the same kingdom that has a good king that has provided enough for all of his children if we trust and obey and believe in him. It's a completely different mindset than our world operates in. Point number three that I want to make about God's economy this morning. God's economy consists of communal provision, not individual. God's economy consists of communal provision, not individual. God's economy is an economy of plenty. He always provides enough, but his dispersion of those resources isn't always exactly equal. Let's go back to our key text, verses 17 through 18. It says this, They, the Israelites, gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So God set up this economy where he said, I'm going to provide enough. There will be enough for you. But when everyone goes out and gathers, something interesting happens. They don't all bring back the same amount. But they were all allotted the same amount of one omer. So what happened? Some gathered more, some didn't gather enough. But when they came together, they pulled their resources and everyone had enough to eat. You can make two assumptions about this. Either one, you had some people that were really good at gathering and some people that weren't very good at gathering. So some went out and were just better gatherers and got more stuff and others didn't get as much. Or, and and I tend to lean this way, the text doesn't tell us, so we don't know, but there's a chance that God's provision wasn't equal. That God spread out the manna in different amounts and in different places. And so as everybody went out to their section to gather manna, some had more in some sections and some had less. But when they came back together, what did they do? They measured it out and made sure that everyone had an omer that they were allotted to be taken care of for that day. And and so what that means is is that the people who either happened to stumble upon a lot of manna or the people that worked really hard to get extra manna, they had to practice generosity of giving up what could be their excess for the next day to provide for the people that needed some that day. It was an act of generosity and faith. And can I tell you this? Our generosity is in itself an act of faith. How so? Especially sacrificial generosity is an act of faith. And this is why, because when we give up today's portion Sorry, when we give up tomorrow's portion to care for someone else today, what we are doing and what Israel was doing was they were trusting that God was going to provide what their needs were for tomorrow. Because when we give to someone in need today, we're giving something that could be used in the future for ourselves. And so in doing so, we're putting our faith in God to say, God, I'm going to provide this need here, one, because I believe that your your provision for us is communal, and two, because I'm trusting that you're going to take care of me tomorrow. It's, it's a radical generosity that requires us to live in the moment. And if I'm honest with you, this is really, really difficult for me. And the reason this is difficult for me is because I'm someone that likes to plan for the future, right? Uh, and, and I'm a father and I have responsibilities and, and I, have, I have two kids. And, and, and you know what? If my kids want to be able to go to college, I want to be able to pay for them to go to college. 
And, and, and I would love to be able to help provide for my kids for their transportation for their first car. And, and my wife and I are interested in, in, in participating in foster care and potentially adoption. And if we end up adopting, then that's going to be extra expenses. And, and, and my daughter, I want to be able to, her to have the wedding of her dreams. And I want to be able to pay for that and be able to encourage that. And, and I want to be able to have enough money saved up for retirement. And, and I want to be able to leave money to my kids and to my grandkids and to have a legacy for them to make sure that they're provided for and taken care of. And if I'm honest with you, when I look at my bank account, I don't feel like I have excess. And there are some days that I don't even feel like I have enough because of all the things that I'm trying to plan for and take care of in the future. But God's economy is not set up on a 15-year plan. God's economy is set up as, are you going to trust me today? And that's a really, really hard place to live. Now, don't get me wrong. Financial planning is incredibly important. And if God has blessed you with excess, you are a good steward if you participate in financial planning, and you should. You should be stewarding well the resources that you've been given. But understand that God's economy is also built on trust in him, trust in him to provide for you, and and a willingness to be able to provide for the community of faith if others are in need. Because sometimes God's provision for the person in need is coming through the excess that he's provided you that you were able to gather a little bit extra and they weren't able to gather enough, but guess what? God's provided for his church in a way that is sufficient that everybody should be taken care of because he is a good God who is taking care of all of his children. Now, I want to take a moment and pause for a second because if I know know American culture well enough, there's a few that are feeling a little bit squirrely and uncomfortable, so I just want to address it. I'm preaching on this idea of shared resources, this idea of radical generosity, of sharing with one another, and I'm sure somebody in the back of their mind, you're not accusing me, but you're thinking, okay, what, what's he getting at? Because this, this, is this some kind of underlying like communist or socialistic message that you're trying to undermine you know, the, the capitalism that we have in America with this whole radical idea of shared resources? What are you talking about? Well, well first of all, I just want to tell you, if you have any issues, um, go see Tim Helm, because... Uh, Tim preached three weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, and everybody was cool. We were cool with it, right? And in Acts chapter 2, it's the same thing. What did they do? There was need. So they went, and they sold the resources that they had, and they radically and generously gave to the community of faith that was in need. It's, it's, this is not a, a radical principle here. This is the same principle that's taught throughout Scripture, that God provides for his children, but his provision is communal and shared. But I also want to say this. When I say that this is God's economy, I am not arguing and I'm not planning to take this to our representatives and say, okay, guys, I want you to implement this in Congress. It's not what I'm saying. Why? Because God's economy, go back to point number one, is built on trust in him and a full dependence on him. And that's not where we are at as a nation or where other nations are. And I'm not saying that this is a governmental economy structure, but I am saying that this is the structure of economy that is meant for God's church in the way that we should be operating one with another. So this is not the plan for all of Lynchburg. This is not the plan for the entire world. This is the plan for Forest Baptist Church, and this is the plan for God's church, that in his kingdom we take care of each other, and his provision for us is together. So this morning, I want to be clear, I'm not preaching a socialistic gospel, but I'm also not preaching an American capitalistic gospel. I want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a, a radical gospel that says that God generously gave of himself, died on the cross for our sins, gave up of himself so that we could live forever in him. And not only does he have our eternity secure, but he also cares very deeply about how we live our lives every day. And he has designed us to live in relationship with one another and with him. And in that relationship and in that economy, it is an economy of plenty and it is an economy of shared resources. God's economy is built on trust in him, is an economy of plenty, consists of communal provision. And number four, God's economy requires hard work. 
God's economy requires hard work. I'm not an economist, but oftentimes the reason that political socialism or political communism fails, besides corruption, which is obviously a a big issue throughout history, is that people lose the incentive to work, right? The way that things are set up, there's no incentive to do better or to work harder. Um, and, and, And so people just end up not working and then things kind of unravel and fall apart. But God's economy is built on both radical generosity and also incredibly hard work. And I think this is something that's really important for Christians to understand, is that we are called to a very strong work ethic as believers. Israel had to go out every single day and collect manna. God was performing a miracle. Uh, Roughly at this time, some estimates are that the people of Israel numbered about a million people, okay? So, and if every day they had enough for like a loaf of bread, so you picture how much food is needed for a million people to have roughly a loaf of bread a day. That's a ton of food. So the fact that they walked out every morning, there's, you know, you go and you read some scholars and some scholars will try to say, well, maybe it was some kind of insect droppings or something that dried up and was able to be eaten. There's no way that there's a natural cause for enough food to generate every single morning in the dew for a million people to eat. This was a miracle of God and his provision for his people. But get this, God did a miracle and provided all this food, but he didn't provide it ready-made. And that's so intriguing to me. God could have very easily have provided them with ready-baked loaves delivered in their tents on their table that morning. But he didn't do that. And what's also interesting to me is, and this is a very common story, and I grew up hearing it, and I always thought that the the manna that was out there, when it says that it was fine and flaky, that they just picked it up and ate it. But if you read the text, that's not actually what happened. In in Exodus 16, and if you also go to Numbers 11, verses 7 through 8, it says that the manna that God supplied was that like coriander seed. I don't know what coriander seed was. I had to Google it, and this is what Google told me coriander seed looked like. So, so God provided this substance, this manna, and if you look in Exodus 16, it even says, you know, it talks about them boiling it. Numbers, seven, or sorry, Numbers chapter 11, it talks about the same thing, that they would gather it, that they would actually have to grind it, then they would boil it and bake it, and then they would be able to eat it. So in God's economy, he's miraculously providing food for them, but they still have to work for it. They have to go out and gather it. They have to take it back and grind it up into flour. They have to put it together. They have to boil it just like they would any other meal. And then guess what? Then they get to actually eat it. God loves work, and I think he wants us to find joy and purpose in our work as well. Undergirding this idea of God's successful economy, again, the foundation of it is built on trust in God, but it also requires hard work of us. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because when we go back in Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, what do we find? God created work before the fall happened, right? In Genesis chapter 3, God cursed work and made it hard and difficult for us because of our sin, but work was established in the garden way before sin ever came into the picture. God gave it to Adam and Eve as a gift and said, here, enjoy. So I think it's important for us to understand as believers when it comes to an economy and how we're supposed to function together, like, yes, there are shared resources and there is taking care of one another, but there is also a personal responsibility to work really hard at what you're doing, to be a good steward of what you've been given, to do your work not unto others, but unto the Lord, to make sure that you are being faithful of what he has given to you and that you are partaking in the good work of, the good gift of work that he's given to us. See, God doesn't design this this system in the church as an institution for it to be just this place where the church just financially takes care of everybody. In fact, there's very few places in Scripture where that is the case, and where it is the case, it's a very strict policy. If you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 15, 
It's a a passage where Paul's instructing them of how to care for the widows in the church because there were people that were essentially on payroll at the church that the church provided for financially. And there were very strict qualifications for who that had to be. You had to be a widow, a true widow. You had to be over the age of 60. You could not have any family relatives because if you had any family relatives, it was the family's responsibility to take care of them. So if you were a kid, it was your responsibility to take care of your parents, not necessarily the church's responsibility to financially take care of them. Um, and, And then even if you were truly a widow, you didn't have any kids, you even had to have a track record. And I was shocked when I'm reading through this because Paul says, listen, you got to be faithful. You have to have served in the church. You have, and he goes through this long list and he says, anybody else that doesn't fit this description, encourage them to go back out into work and make sure they provide for themselves. It's like, man, Paul, that's kind of harsh. Like, that's serious. But, but, but it's not a curse to go out and to work, right? It's a good gift that God has given us. So it's no, like, at this point, I'm encouraging you to go and, and fulfill all that I've called you to do to partake in this good gift. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3.10, Paul says the same thing. He says this, for even when we were with you, we would give you this commandment. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So I, I bring these up to, to say, I'm, again, I'm not preaching a socialistic or communistic gospel. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this radical generosity built on faith and trust in God, but it also requires hard work by those who are Christians. So I just want to ask you, if you're a believer this morning, be known in your workplace as somebody that works hard. Be known as somebody that finds purpose and value in their work, not just because of the task that you're doing, but because work in and of itself is a good gift given to you by God, meant to be enjoyed and meant to be taken part of. God's economy is built on hard work. Number five, God's economy requires the right mindset. God's economy requires the right mindset. I've already suggested this morning that God's economy is an economy of plenty. But in order for us to realize the benefits of the economy of plenty, we have to live in a mentality of plenty as well. What do I mean by that? Um, What happened when the people lived in a mentality of scarcity, right? We read this before, read it again. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. When the Israelites lived in a mentality of scarcity and they tried to take control for themselves and store up for their future, they were left with rotten bread, gross worms, and disappointment, and an empty stomach. It didn't go well for them. When we live, even in God's economy of plenty, if we live with the mentality of scarcity, scarcity, we won't be able to realize the benefits that he's provided to us. Can I give you a perfect example of this? A perfect example of what it looks like to live in a mentality of scarcity happened last month here in Lynchburg. On May 7th, there was a, a cyber attack, a ransomware attack, um, and where the, the Colonial Pipeline was shut down, right? Colonial Pipeline was shut down, oil and gas stopped, and people started to panic. And they started to think, there's not going to be enough. So what do we do? So people started making a rush on the gas stations, and they started filling up, and there were pictures of people literally filling up Walmart grocery bags with gasoline, trying to save up enough for themselves. Now, in all fairness, this picture was taken in Florida. These were not in Lynchburg. Um, so you, you hopefully don't recognize these people. Um, but what happened? People, people thought there's not going to be enough to go around, so they made a rush on the gas station and hoarded up for themselves to make sure that they could provide. Here's what's really interesting, okay? What's really interesting about this is we have someone who used to be our neighbor, uh, a friend of ours, who, who is a manager of a Sheets here in town, Sheets gas station, right? Sheets gas station that ran out of gas, right? Do you know what he told us? They never missed a shipment of gas. Not one time. 
because there was another pipeline that was going up through Roanoke, and so they were still getting all the gas that they normally got. So what happened? The reason that they ran out of gas is because people bought twice and three times as much gas as they normally buy because they were scared there wasn't going to be enough. And what was the result? They lived in a mentality of scarcity, and all of a sudden, everyone starts taking and hoarding, and there's not enough to go around. So some people have barrels of gas sitting up at home that they've stored for themselves, and other people don't have gas to get to work because people are operating out of mentality of scarcity. And even though there was enough, people went without, and some people had excess because they weren't working together. It's a perfect example of what happens when we live in an economy of scarcity, and the business world operates the same way, right? In the business world, there's not enough projects, there's not enough money to go around so we compete for projects so that we can get the funds for the project. There's not enough contracts to go around so we compete for bids. There's not enough promotions to go around so we compete and jockey for position and try to gain and take everything that we can for ourselves because there's not enough to go around. And then what happens is we take that same mentality that we live every day in, in this world, and then we try to apply it to the church and we get frustrated when it blows up in our face. Well, it's not the way that God designed it, right? And even if he's given us an economy of plenty, if we live in a mentality of scarcity, we won't realize the benefits of it. And can I just tell you that there are so many, so many applications to this in life. Some of you may be experiencing struggles in your marriage because you're living in your marriage in an economy of scarcity, in a mentality of scarcity, when God has provided you with enough. And you're worried and you're scared that there's not enough intimacy to go around, that there's not enough love to go around, there's not enough security to go around, so what do you do? You start taking for yourself. And everything you can, you start taking from your spouse, and you know what? No, I'm not going to give this to them because I'm worried that if I give that to them, then I'm going to be depleted. They're not going to give it back, so I'm just going to keep holding it to myself. And what does your spouse feel? Your spouse feels the same thing that they're not getting from you, so what do they start doing? Well, they start holding in too and making sure that they're taking care of themselves, and they're not providing for you. And, and then worst case scenario, what happens? Well, if I'm not getting it here, then I'm going to go look for it somewhere else because I need to make sure I get enough for myself, and there's not enough here that God's provided for me. But God's economy is an economy of plenty, right? And if we, if we live with the mentality of plenty and we believe that God has provided for me everything that I need in him and in my spouse that he has given to me, then we are free to start sharing our resources. Because guess what? Your husband has things that you need that he can't get without you giving it to him. And, and your wife has things that she needs that you, she can't get without you providing for her. And unless you are both providing freely and sharing as each of you gathers and some has more and some has less and that shared combining where you have enough, but instead, if you start saying, no, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of. I'm going to make sure that I'm in a good place. And you start taking and securing and, and trying to guard up against yourself. Suddenly, nobody has enough. And your marriage starts to look more like the Martin's backyard than it does like God's economy. Chaos and suffering and difficulty and strife. And, and the same thing is true for, for our friendships, right? Sometimes we live in an economy of scarcity when it comes to popularity. And we think, well, there's only enough affirmation to go around, so we have to compete with others. Because there's going to be people that are popular and there's going to be outcasts. And I want to make sure I'm in the popular crowd so that I can be, feel good about myself or so that I can get the next promotion or that I can be in the good position. So what do we do? We start jockeying and striving and competing with one another because there's not enough to go around. And what happens? Then people live in these awkward, striving relationships where they can't truly be themselves and they can't feel comfortable and then they're not even being fulfilled because it's not even the, this real affirmation that they need. And as a result, people suffer. But that's not the way that God designed it. He designed it in such a way that he has provided enough for his people. But we have to live in a mentality of plenty, believing that God has provided for us. So maybe at this point I've convinced you that God's economy is an economy of plenty built on trust in him. But maybe you say, but Stephen, how do I really know that this is for us, right? 
Like, that's all well and good for Israel, and maybe that was God's economy for them, but, but we have cities now, we have division of labor, economy is very different today than it was back then. Are we sure that this, this design that God gave for Israel is really true for us? I, I genuinely believe that it is. Point number six, God's economy for Israel is still God's economy for us. If you, if you have your Bible, turn in to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. I truly believe that this is not just an economy that God designed for Israel in the wilderness, but it is still an economy for us. And I want to, I want to prove it to you through 2 Corinthians chapter 8. To give you a little bit of background on where this is, um, this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. This is after his first missionary journey. And so when Paul left Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, things are going great, right? He, he leaves Jerusalem, everyone's coming together, they're selling possessions, everyone's taken care of, um, and then we find out that things didn't go so well for the Christians in Jerusalem. Persecution started happening, uh, the Jews did not like that people were converting from Judaism to Christianity, um, and, and we, we can read about what happened through the, the reign of, of, of Nero and others, and Rome started not liking the Christians and blaming things on the Christians, um, and so, so things were really difficult for the Christians in Rome, or sorry, in Jerusalem, um, and Rome later in 60 AD, but let's go back to Jerusalem uh, at the founding. So, so things were difficult for, for the Christians in Jerusalem, and so what was happening is Paul's going out on his missionary journey. He starts collecting an offering, and he starts telling people, hey, there's a lot of Christians in Jerusalem, and, and they're in really big need right now. So I'm collecting money. I'm going to take it with me and take it back to them to supply for them. So he did this on his first missionary journey, and when he went to Corinth, Corinth the believers in Corinth weren't wealthy. Uh, they didn't have a ton of excess, but they still provided generously, and they gave to this offering for Paul to take back to Jerusalem. So now Paul's writing to them on the second missionary journey. He's coming by, and he's like, hey, I got the offering plate again. They're still struggling in Jerusalem. And, and so he's asking them for an offering, and listen to the way he says this to them the second time around. They're doing better financially, it seems, than they were the first time around, and Paul's going to encourage them to continue to give. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 15 is the exact same passage that we've been preaching on in Exodus chapter 16 verses 17 through 18. It's the exact same scripture. Paul quotes it and he says, hey guys, God's economy for Israel in the wilderness is the same economy for us today as believers in the church. And I want to put it to you this morning, church, that I believe that the same economy for Israel in the wilderness that was true for the church in the days of Paul is also the same that is true for us today as a church. And, and notice that, that this is a sacrificial giving in verse 14. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Paul is recognizing and acknowledging that by you giving your excess now, you're putting yourself in a place of vulnerability that you may be in need two years down the road. But, but do it anyway, because guess what? Two years down the road, when you're in need, God's going to supply them with excess, and he's going to be able to take care of you because God's economy is an economy of plenty. Sacrificial generosity is an act of faith, and we only fear sacrificial giving when we believe in a mentality of scarcity, that there's not enough to go around. I need to take care of myself. And God says, no, I'm going to take care of you. Be good stewards of what you've been given. 
Work hard at what you do. Encourage others to work hard at what they do. But at the end of the day, when you go around and you've done your work and you look to your left and your right and you see people that in your need that have also been working right alongside of you, but, but they don't have enough, make sure you provide for them because I've provided enough for my people and my provision is coming through you. The American ideals in this, in this nation, which I do believe we live in an incredible nation, and, and Joe talked about the privilege that we have to be able to worship freely, and there's so much good that we have. One of the subtle things that can sometimes lead us astray is we, we, we have this notion in America that if you work hard, you can succeed, which is true most of the time. But, but what does that imply? Well, that implies that if you're in need, either A, you're not working hard, or you've made really poor dis- choices, and you deserve the suffering that you have because you didn't do what you should have done. But that's not true according to God's economy, right? God's economy says that you can work hard, that you can do everything you're supposed to do, and there still may be times that you've gathered little and others have gathered much, and you still need to rely on other people. And and so we can still be generous with our funds and not think that we're doing it out of this broken relationship. And in the same way, can I tell you this, because somebody needs to hear this this morning, you may be doing everything you can in life and working really hard and trying as best you can to work hard, to honor the Lord, and you're in need and you're wondering, God, what am I doing wrong? We all do things wrong and we all have sin in our life, but can I tell you that, that God may not be punishing you, but that you're simply operating in God's economy in this season of life. God may be using others to provide for you and that you can still have dignity in being part of the body of Christ and partaking and relying on one another and that that is part of how God has designed his church to work. I truly and generally believe that God's economy is an economy of plenty, that he is good and sufficient for us, that he has provided everything we need. But in order to experience that goodness, we have to wake up every single day and trust in him. We we have to operate in a mentality of plenty, believing that God is a good God who has provided for us. There is an element of personal responsibility that we have to work hard and, and, and enjoy the good gift of work that God has given us. And we also have to look to our left and our right and our brothers and sisters and take care of one another. And can I tell you this, guys, is as, as you go this week and you watch fireworks and, and you get to experience the beauty of them as they light up in the sky, I genuinely believe that if, if we as a church can operate in God's economy of plenty, that I genuinely believe that we can shine a light in this dark world as beautiful as the fireworks in the night sky. That there's something incredibly beautiful when you see a group of people that are putting their undying devotion in the Lord Jesus Christ and sacrificially and loving caring for the people that are around them working hard together for a common cause of the good of the, the, the body of Christ. It's a beautiful picture that I think is an incredible testimony to God's goodness. If you would, pray with me, and then we'll, we'll spend some time responding in worship. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a good God, and I thank you that you have provided for us. I thank you that as your children, you have promised to never leave or forsake us. You have promised us that, that you are good, that we can be, you can be trusted. You've proven that you can be trusted. And that you've promised that you're going to return. And, and all the, the hurt and suffering and brokenness that exists in the world will all eventually be wiped away and your kingdom will be instilled in its fullness. And God, while we look forward to that day in joyful hope and expectation, we also pray right now as you commanded us, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And while we know that, that we will never experience your kingdom perfectly on this earth, I genuinely believe that, that we can experience it in part. That you ask us to live it out and that you've given us the instructions, you've given us the way, and not only that, Lord, but, but, 
but you've given us the power to do it. As we sang earlier, Lord, not, not I, but Christ in me, I pray that, that, that we could say that as a church, that we could live out this economy that God has for us of, of sacrificial giving and care for one another, and at the end of it, we could say, not us, but Christ in us has supplied us with the strength to live in this way, to know that you are enough, and to experience the goodness that you've provided to us. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith, increase our love for one another, and our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.